Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. My name is James Walner. This is episode three of Unresolved, the murder of Joel Lovely. If you've not listened to the previous episodes, you'll want to start there. We might not know exactly what happened to Joel Loveling on the evening of October 27th, 2007, but we do know where and when it happened, outside the Broken Drum Bar at 11.50 p.m. Then, 70 minutes later, and less than a mile away, our taxi driver, Paul Ballstad, picked up that bloodied man in yellow, Travis Stay. Travis hailed the cab by a huge cemetery at its northwest corner. I'm on stop by Woodrow, Harry. And stopped the corner there. He ran across the street, climbed in. But now, let's go back in time just 40 minutes, and like a bird, let's fly from that northwest corner, up above the headstones and memorials, then touch down again outside the cemetery entrance at the southeast corner. Just a stone's throw from that cemetery entrance are the many front yards and homes along 11th Avenue North. The houses face the street, and the detached car garages face a back alley. Inside one of those garages sit two men watching TV. In one seat is Roger, the owner of the property. In the other, his friend and neighbor, 48-year-old Stephen Rosica. Stephen Rosica had arrived there by foot at 7 p.m., and the two men had been enjoying the evening, just hanging out. Earlier, they watched the University of North Dakota hockey team blow out Michigan Tech 6 to nothing. But now it is late, 12.20 a.m., and Stephen decides to call it a night and walk back to his own home. He lives on the same block, just seven houses away, And even though it's cold, this stroll should be a piece of cake. He can simply mosey down the alleyway to his own place. So, Stephen says goodbye to Roger, then slips out the side door of the garage. Outside, Steve can't see real well, but well enough. There are no street lights or floodlights in the alley, just the occasional light bulb above a neighborhood garage. Stephen walks east down the alley. He immediately spots a man leaning up against the back fence. It's a little odd, maybe, someone just hanging around back here at this late and cold hour. Stephen continues homeward, 
but looks back over his shoulder, curious about what this man is up to. Now the stranger by the fence is moving. In fact, he's following Stephen. Stephen takes a few more steps. He's four houses from home. He glances behind again. Whoever this is, they're still following, and they're staggering like a drunk person. Two houses from home now. Stephen can see the light on the back of his own garage. It's getting lighter. He glances back again. The man is gaining on him. When Stephen arrives at his own garage, he looks quickly behind him and finds the man staggering towards him. He's pulling up one sleeve of a yellow sweatshirt. The man in yellow lunges forward, cocks his arm, and takes a wild swing at Stephen Rosaka. But Stephen dodges the blow and his assailant falls to the ground. Stephen takes a quick look at the man while he's down. He's young, college age, and wearing a yellow sweatshirt with the hood up, and he has blood on the center of his forehead. On his arm is what looks like some kind of makeshift bandage. Stephen races to his back door, and once inside, he grabs a baseball bat and pulls out his cell phone. He calls Roger quickly, seven houses away. Moments later, Roger tears up in his pickup, and Stephen jumps in the passenger seat. Then, like a posse, off they charge in search of a seemingly deranged man in yellow. They prowl and patrol their neighborhood. They cruise up the alley and around 10th Avenue North, 11th Avenue North, past the old cemetery entrance. Somehow they can't find him. Somehow the man in yellow, he's just gone. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. In this episode, we're going to examine the movements and actions of the man in yellow, Travis Stay. What was going on with him and his friends before the bus, on the bus, and after the bus? To reconstruct Travis' weekend and the days to follow, I've relied primarily on statements made to police by five people, all of whom rode on the party bus. They are Travis Stay himself, two of his roommates, and two of his friends. These friends and roommates and the statements they made to police are the closest we'll ever get to being a fly on the wall that fateful night. One friend was basically attached to Travis' hip for most of the night, and another was awake at home when Travis arrived in a taxi and walked in the front door covered in blood. But consolidating and cross-referencing these witness accounts was not as straightforward as I had hoped. In some cases, they contradict each other, and timelines get blurry and sketchy. Why? Well, once again, alcohol, I think, 
lots of alcohol. In fact, two of these individuals state that they don't remember being at the Broken Drum Bar at all. But nevertheless, by painstakingly studying these witness accounts multiple, multiple times, I've been able to reconstruct their evening. I've also reviewed the many photographs taken at Travis Day's residence by police. I should note here that I did request an interview with Travis Day through one of the attorneys who represented him at his trial. At the time of this recording, he is not accepted, but the invitation still stands. In 2007, Travis Day was enrolled at the University of North Dakota, or UND. It's a public university. He was in the nursing program. Travis and his roommates lived in a home at 2027 2nd Avenue North in Grand Forks. That's a good location for UND students. A 10-minute walk to campus, 20-minute walk downtown, a hop, skip, and a jump to some of the best collegiate hockey in the nation. The house is a small, one-story brick dwelling with a furnished basement, bedrooms on both floors. Who's to say, really, what a typical college house looks like inside? There are certainly many flavors. The flavor here was messy and cluttered. In the bedrooms, there are clothes everywhere, on the beds, on the floors. Most drawers are left open. You might think the place had been ransacked. Alcoholic beverage containers are everywhere, empty and displayed like trophies. On the mantelpiece above the fireplace are six-packs of Corona, Beck's, Red Stripe, Dos Equis, and there's hard liquor everywhere. Tequila, gin, vodka, to name only three. On that fateful Saturday, October 27, 2007, two of Travis Day's roommates, Cora Lee and Luke, had caught wind of a party bus. They asked Travis if he wanted to come along. Travis figured he wouldn't really know anyone else on the bus, so he jumped on the phone and invited two friends, Eli and Joe. He basically told them to grab a costume, come on over to his place for some drinks, and then they'd catch that Halloween bus. And so that's what they did. Eli showed up around 6, Joe a little later. They hit some hard alcohol first, then cracked open some pre-party beers. You know just to get into character. They also got into costume, all five of them. They were Travis, the yellow lion, his roommate Coralie, a geisha, roommate Luke, an Elmer Fudd-style hunter, his buddy Eli, a priest, and his buddy Joe, a movie character named Joe Black, in a plaid shirt with the sleeves cut off and a mullet wig. In other words, just five college kids getting oiled up and ready to roll on a Halloween-themed Saturday night. At 8.30 p.m., they drove to Cuckoo's Nest Bar in East Grand Forks to catch the bus. While waiting for the bus to arrive, they ordered more drinks at the bar. But the bus was late. They waited and waited and waited. They drank and drank and drank. until finally someone yelled, the bus is here, and they headed outside where they lined up behind some 40 other costume party-goers. They found seats near the rear of the bus, and then just like that, they were headed off to their first stop. (laughs) 
Of course, leaving the bar did not mean they couldn't still drink alcohol. This was basically a bar on wheels. Travis Stay pulled out a bottle of 100 proof cinnamon schnapps called Hot 100. He took a pull on it, then handed it to the person who would be his constant companion that night, Eli the priest. It was just the two of them passing the bottle back and forth in the rear of the bus. Eli the priest takes a swig, Travis the lion takes a swig, repeat, repeat, repeat. And hey, what's this? Jello shots. 325 of them free for the taking. And all this before they even got to their very first destination, Borrowed Buck's Bar. Of all the bars visited that night, this first stop was the longest. Many witnesses stated that they had time for two drinks there. Almost an hour later, the word went out, bus is leaving. So once again, the herd funneled out the door, boarded the big yellow school bus, and again, off they went. The broken drum bar was still two stops away. First, they needed to stop at a bar called El Rocco. By the time they pulled into the parking lot at El Rocco, Travis the Lion and Eli the Priest had already finished that bottle of 100-proof Hot 100. Eli stated later that he himself had also consumed at least six jello shots. I want to ease off the throttle a little bit at the El Rocco bar and spend a minute talking about this moment of the evening, this stop before the broken drum. After reading and digesting the many witness accounts made to police later, it seems clear to me that this was a pivotal moment of the evening. Things are starting to get out of hand. One indication of this is that more than one passenger abandoned the bus right then and there. It was just too much. It is also here at El Rocco Bar when the memory banks start getting wiped out completely. Remember, Travis was in the company of four others. Two roommates, Coralie and Luke, and his friends, Joe and Eli. Both Joe and Eli lost track of their night at this point. At least that's what they stated to police later. Eli the priest stated that he had no memory at all of leaving El Rocco for the broken drum, nor being at the broken drum. The next thing he could remember was walking around downtown by himself near the bus's final stop. But I must have been down at the drum, he told police, because I see in my bank statement that I paid for a drink there with my debit card. So confused was Eli himself about this memory loss that days later he went back to the broken drum just to see if he recognized anything. No memory. Gone. It was like he'd never seen the place. And Joe? Well, Joe told police that he bailed out here at El Rocco Bar and walked back to Travis' place. He was never even at the broken drum at all, he said. But, and bear with me for this tidbit, it's confusing, which is also my point. Joe also stated that Travis' roommate, Luke, helped him walk back to the little brick house on 2nd Avenue North. He said Luke walked with him from El Rocco. But that can't be right because Luke was at the Broken Drum and later downtown where the bus ultimately ended up. If they walked together, it wasn't from El Rocco. 
So any way you look at it, there was major, major memory loss by someone, if not everyone, that night. Either Joe walked home from El Rocco with someone he thought was Luke, but wasn't Luke, or Luke and Joe walked home together from downtown later, but neither one of them remember it correctly. And something else happened at the El Rocco bar, too. Something involving Travis Stay. As Travis was boarding the bus, he did something or said something that angered somebody. He told this to investigators later. He said that he might have said something to a girl and the girl's boyfriend got angry at him. There was some kind of dispute or maybe words were exchanged. He couldn't really remember exactly. Now, you will remember the cowboy, Bryce Larson, who was a type of organizer of the bus. He recalled for investigators that he tried to kick one individual off the bus for causing problems at the El Rocco. Bryce didn't remember it being Travis Day, he just told the cops the man looked like he was wearing a sunflower costume. It was Travis, though. Travis told the cops at one point, some people thought I was dressed as a dandelion. But whatever happened there at El Rocco, it didn't escalate, and soon enough, the big bus departed for the broken drum ball. So you want to know what happened at the broken drum? That's the million-dollar question, and Joel Loveling's family and so many others, all of us, would certainly like to know what happened in the parking lot at around 11.50 p.m. I can't tell you exactly what happened, because we just don't know. Not exactly. But I can tell you what Travis' friends and roommates remember, or in this case, what little they remember. Roommate Luke. He didn't even get a drink at the drum. He just remembered going inside to use the restroom and returning to the bus. He saw Travis inside, he said, but that was it. Eli the priest. As I said earlier, he didn't remember being there at all. He paid for a drink with his debit card, but had no memory of it. Roommate Coralie, the geisha. All she could really recall was that Travis didn't get back on the bus. And finally, Travis' friend, Joe... As I said before, he believed he'd already walked home at this point from El Rocco. I don't know if he did. I don't think anyone knows. Not even Joe. Unfortunately, that's the best help that our four friends can offer us about the broken drum. They'll be of much more help in a minute when we look at what happened when Travis arrived home by taxi that night. And Travis, what did he have to say about the broken drum bar? Well, that's what his trial was all about, of course. And so we'll get into that in more detail another time. But in a nutshell, Travis maintained the following in regards to the broken drum. He remembered getting punched by someone in the parking lot and falling to the ground. He remembered that he tried to get up and seeing people by the bus. The next thing he recalled was getting into a taxi, but he didn't know where. He thought it must have been right there at the broken drum. And someone tried to help him, maybe. Someone in a plaid shirt, he thought. Maybe the taxi driver, he suggested to police. The next thing he knew, he was at home, eating a peanut butter sandwich with his friend Eli. Eli the priest was Eli McVeigh, and he had known Travis since the age of nine. They'd gone to school together in Minnesota. 
After the broken drum, which he had no recollection of at all, Eli found himself wandering around downtown Grand Forks, alone and very drunk. He realized he was a bit too drunk and he'd better get on home. But not home home. His home was in Princeton, Minnesota. So he decided to walk 16 blocks back to Travis' place. He knew how to get there because he'd once lived there for a few months himself. When he arrived at the house, Eli was famished, so he stood in the kitchen, making himself something to eat. Just a few minutes later, the front door opened and in walked Travis Stay. The living room was dark, so Eli couldn't see Travis very well at first. Eli said something like, hey man, what are you up to? Then Travis walked into the brightly lit kitchen. Eli's first reaction was to laugh. He would tell investigators later that Travis was, well, just bloody and had the worst black eye he'd ever seen in his life. His face and clothes were covered in blood. Eli said something like, what in the world happened to you? But all Eli was met with was an empty stare and a quick, what are you talking about? Travis was slurring his speech, too. Eli described him as extremely intoxicated. Eli tried again, what happened to you? But still, just that blank stare. So Eli told Travis to go take a look at himself in the mirror. When Travis returned, he said, Oh my God, what happened? What happened to me? Eli looked at Travis' hands. They were scratched up and there were small bruises here and there. Did you get in a fight? He asked. Travis didn't know. Couldn't remember. And somehow, maybe because they were still so drunk... They didn't put all that much more thought or worry into it that night. They kind of just left it at that. So Travis got beat up. Whatever. It happens. Then Travis went to bed, and after Eli finished his sandwich, he found an empty bed and passed out too. When Eli woke up in the late morning that Sunday, he found Travis talking to his roommate, Cora Lee. Cora Lee was Cora Lee Taylor. When interviewed by police, she said that all that Travis could remember that morning was that he got punched by someone, someone he didn't know, outside of the broken drum. And Travis just kept repeating over and over, why would someone jump me? And if someone beat me up, I'm going to be so angry. Their lives went on, though. Eli drove back to Minnesota. Travis, he tossed his bloody Halloween costume in the trash, then cleaned up his wounds, and that was that. Just another hangover on another Sunday. On that Sunday, most people in Grand Forks didn't hear much about the death at the Broken Drum Bar. The Grand Forks PD released minimal information that afternoon before following up with more on Monday. Of course, Joel Loveling's family knew what was going on. In Bozeman, Montana, his sister Erica had received that phone call the night before, 
while hosting her own Halloween party. It had been a long night. As you might imagine, she didn't sleep much. Very little. I mean, if I, if anything, I cried myself to sleep. Woke up the next morning and packed the car early, early and headed for Great Falls, which is where uh, Judy and Terry were living at the time, Great Falls, Montana. And we arrived there and they basically had the car running. So we transferred our bags to their car, got in, and we headed for Grand Forks. My folks, my husband, Tyler, and I. And as you might imagine, it was a long, quiet car ride. It was silent. Yeah, not a lot, not a lot said. We were reeling. I mean, we couldn't even, we weren't even capable of speculation at that time. We didn't know enough. We, we couldn't understand it. Nothing made sense. And then it's and then it's kind of a blur, to be honest. On Monday, the Grand Forks PD released an updated press release about the death at the broken drum. They didn't mention Joel Loveling by name, only that a 38-year-old man had died and they were treating it as a homicide. They also shared with the world that they were looking for certain individuals who had been dressed in Halloween costumes. The costumes they were interested in were the following. A Joker, like the Joker from Batman series. A Penguin. A Golden Gopher fan. A man in a yellow hooded sweatshirt. I want to take a second to explain a bit more about this press release and the four costumes they were looking for. The police listed four costumes, but that does not mean they considered those descriptions to necessarily be four different people. They were simply trying to help the public by offering various interpretations and witness accounts. As it turned out, with the exception of the first one, the Joker, all of these costumes were pertaining to Travis Stay a penguin, a golden gopher fan, and a man in a yellow hooded sweatshirt. Now, the yellow hooded sweatshirt needs no explanation. That's what Travis was wearing. The golden gopher fan costume is essentially the same, a yellow costume. Anna Barrett, a.k.a. Paris Hilton, who was with James Wavra, the hunter, when he had a scuffle with Travis, told police it might have been a golden gopher fan costume. And why a penguin? Well, I wondered that, too. Sifting through 1,500 pages of documents finally helped me understand why. You may recall that investigators discovered a few items on the ground near where Joel died. Some poker chips, Joel's hat, and also a yellow piece of cloth that looked like a toad foot or something, part of a Halloween costume. This yellow thing was originally interpreted to be part of a bird costume. And when asked if any witnesses remembered someone in a bird costume, some recalled a penguin, because there had been a penguin in the broken drum that night, earlier from a different party bus. But none of that had been worked out yet by Monday morning when the Grand Forks PD released that update. All they knew was that that yellow thing might be part of a bird's costume, and people remembered a penguin. Let's find this penguin. And what about that joker? Why were they looking for the Joker? The Joker has become almost tattooed into the DNA of this story ever since the beginning. The Dateline production about Joel's death mentions him too. 
But why the Joker? Well, let me tell you why. Because he had a really, really, really good costume. The best. And what do people remember from past Halloween parties or events when asked about them? Not the most forgetful or bland costumes. Not the crappy costumes. They remember the very best. The ones that stood out. And everyone remembered the Joker. And I can tell you that the Joker was located and interviewed by police. He was located easily because after the press release, all of Grand Forks was talking about the death and did you hear they're looking for a guy dressed in a Joker costume? It didn't take long for PD to get tips on his name. And they brought him into the PD for an interview. He was interviewed hard for a long, long time. There was simply nothing there. There were no witness statements that the Joker was ever involved with any altercation or talk to Joel Loveline, nothing. And because all eyes were on the Joker that night, again, such a good costume, it would have been hard for him to have done anything that night without people noticing. As unbelievable as it sounds, the Joker will forever be associated with this story because he really stood out. If you would like to see a photo of the Joker, head over to inforum.com unresolved. On Monday, news about the death and the costumes police were interested in reached Travis' stay. His friends and roommates would later state that Travis was shocked. He said something like, oh my god, that sounds like my costume, and what should I do? Travis's friend Eli told him to make sure he brings a lawyer with him if he comes in. Things can get twisted around if you're not careful, he told Travis. But Travis Stay did not bring a lawyer with him when he voluntarily walked into the police department that day. He was matter-of-fact and straightforward with them. He said somebody hit him and then someone may have tried to help him, someone in a plaid shirt, probably the taxi driver, he suggested. And Travis cooperated through two interviews, one on Monday and one on Tuesday. He gave them his shoes and let them photograph his hands and his huge cut under his left eye. He gave them everything they wanted, and when asked where his costume was, he told them he had thrown it away at home because it was soaked in blood. In fact, it was probably still in the garbage there. Travis Stay even gave them consent to search his home and remove items. Even though he could not remember much of anything, Travis was confident he had nothing to do with a beating death at the Broken Drum Bar. He felt he simply wasn't that kind of person. The following audio is from a television news report that week by local channel WDAZ. The family announced a reward to find his killer. Loveling was found beaten to death outside a Grand Forks bar on Saturday. We're hoping that any little bit of information, somebody might have seen something driving by that night, any bit of information is no uh, small or big, please come forward with it because... Joel didn't deserve to go out like this. Today, Loveling's family announced the $5,000 reward for information that leads police to the person who murdered him. We need to get the person or persons responsible for this off the street. Who's to say you're not going to be the next innocent victim? We need your help. Take a moment to think if this was your family member or your friend, wouldn't you want someone to do the same? About two dozen of Loveling's closest family and friends shared hugs and words of comfort as they made the announcement. They say Loveling was a person who would help anyone and someone who never got in fights. Loveling's longtime friend says that is part of what makes the killing so hard to deal with. 
I don't get it. I don't understand why somebody that's not involved in these types of situations just suddenly, suddenly gets attacked and brutally beaten in this manner. Doesn't make sense. The police say they do have a person of interest. They haven't made any arrests. Six weeks later, at 11 a.m. on a Monday morning, Travis and his roommates were at home when detectives knocked on their front door. In their hand, they had a warrant. Travis Day was then handcuffed and arrested for the murder of Joel Lupling. Still yet to come in this season of Dakota Spotlight. Gentle giant. He was, he was a big guy and he wasn't aggressive in that way. And then I go over and look at it more and I think to myself, that eh, doesn't look like blood. Uh, he had the victim's blood on his clothes, on his face. Body of the sweatshirt, the arm of the sweatshirt, the costume piece that was in the garbage. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, and produced by me, James Walner. I also do the sound editing. Our podcast network manager is Chris Kurzman. Madison Hunter, our social media specialist, and Jeremy Fugelberg, our editorial advisor. Don't miss the awesome Dakota Spotlight Facebook group. To join, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Dakota Spotlight. Finally, some music this season was generously granted again by Wowza in Kalamazoo and Hand Turner. Check them out at wowzainkalamazoo.bandcamp.com and handturner.bandcamp.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.